we've been really, really good, but never great. Welcome to the Mainline Podcast and welcome to the offseason. We're officially 235 days away from the home opener for the Sooners now. I'm your host, Adam Jacquez, alongside Tyler Burton, Corbin Polson. Guys, how are we doing? Doing good, guys. I already missed football. Yeah, the uh, morning after football season ends, uh, sounds like I'm coming down with the COVID, so feeling Feeling good. Probably feeling a lot better than Alabama fans, but we're we're going to roll with it. So excited to do this. Yeah, I guess we do have to start right there with the national championship game that just happened last night. I was true to my word. Like I said last week, I did not watch a second of this game. I had zero interest in it. And I think that mainly just drove from the fact that as an OU fan, who do I even root for in that situation? You've got the evil dynasty of Bama. You've got the Georgia team that knocked us out in 17 and now looks a lot like that evil dynasty in uh, in what Nick Saban's running there. So I didn't watch a single second of it. I guess for me and from an OU perspective, I look at Georgia and I see the first championship in 41 years for that program, but yet they've been right there so many times. It, I, I don't want to enter into that type of phase, you know, as an OU fan going 41 years between championships, but it kind of feels like we're on that same path at this point. We're halfway there. <laughs> Jesus Christ. No, I'm I, I, I'm always excited. I didn't really have a dog in the fight last night. I mean, I'm always excited to watch the national championship game, you know, outside of Masters Sunday. Um, it's got to be one of my favorite sports days of the year. But last night, I kind of feel like was even better um, because, you know, with Oklahoma set to go to the SEC here in just a couple of years, I wanted to sit down and watch, you know, those two teams. Two, you know, it doesn't get any better than Alabama, Georgia. When you're talking about the pinnacle of college football, those two rosters, elite talent from top to bottom, two phenomenal coaches. And guys, <laughs> oh my God, after watching last night, I think it just kind of magnified what I already knew um, times a thousand about Oklahoma going to the SEC. And, you know, right now, January 11th, 7.08 p.m. as we're recording this. And especially after all the personnel that we've lost over the last two to three weeks, OU is not even close to being able to compete on an annual basis with the Alabamas and the Georgias of the world. Um, I, and again, that, that's going to piss a lot of people off. And Adam, you're already you know, kind of raising your eyebrow at me. But the two biggest differences when you look at Oklahoma and you watch that game last night and you watch Alabama and Georgia, the, the defensive linemen on bo- uh, for both of those teams last night, and we'll even factor in the offensive linemen as well, when you look at the, the – athletes that they've got in the trenches down there in Athens and in Tuscaloosa and you look at the speed of the athletes across the board on both of those teams Will Anderson Dallas Turner Nakobe Dean Jordan Davis uh, Jordan Battle Keely Ringo I'm sorry OU doesn't have guys like that I'm sorry Perion Winfrey good player Isaiah Thomas good player Jalen Redmond Nick Benito really good players love them I'm sorry not a single one of the guys and it's sad to say this but I don't think a single one of the guys on OU's defense this year scratches the two deep at either one of the schools that we watched last night so um i'm sorry if that hurt someone's feelings or you disagree but i think it's the truth and you kind of saw it play out last night or at least corbin and i did i just want to give a quick shout out to whoever runs the dick sporting goods account on twitter i don't know if either one of you saw that um but georgia goes to take the lead right before bama takes it back and they send out a tweet basically saying like come get your georgia gear at your local dick sporting goods 
and I just like in that moment, I was like, Bama's going to win. Like, you can't do that. And then, you know, Georgia pulls this out. And that's obviously eventually what happened. But guys, that whoever that was, he or she who tweeted that out, like if Georgia doesn't win, they're fired. And Dick's Sporting Goods may not exist in the state of Georgia moving forward. So it ended up working out well for everybody. But that was uh, one of those, you know, especially for if you're a sports better, uh, one of those moments where you're like, this just jinxed everything. And Bama went and scored right after that. But anyway, getting right back onto the point. Uh, the speed is what I think startled me watching that game last night. The way that those two teams flew around the football, I think Tyler, you hit it like spot on, like we're not close. We're not, uh, maybe that changes under Venables and company, but at least where things stand right now, we're not close. The, I think the only thing that gives me a little bit of promise is I think Stetson is an average quarterback at best and George just won a title with him. That gives me a little bit of hope, but you just you look at what's around that kid and it is just loaded from top to bottom. And that's something that Oklahoma doesn't have. And they also don't have those type of recruits just sitting in their backyard like an Alabama and Georgia does. So this program's got a ways to go before we start looking at another national championship, I believe. You watched Stetson Bennett play last night, winning a national championship. It just it just hurt for me so much the fact that we couldn't get it done with Baker or Kyler. But it just kind of goes to show that when you've got a complete roster built around the quarterback position, you don't have to have a five-star guy. Now, it helps. Don't get me wrong. Bryce Young, a fantastic player. But, you know, Adam, throwing this over to you, I was pretty negative kind of in the opening commentary. But on the flip side, after watching that game last night, I feel a lot better about the future of Oklahoma and their ability to win a national championship compared to when Lincoln Riley was here because of what we now have on the coaching staff. Venables, Jeff Levy, Todd Bates, and Jerry Schmidt are the big ones for me. Now, you know, those four guys, they know what it takes to win a national championship. They know the style of ball you have to play. They know the type of athletes you have to recruit and bring into your program to fill your roster in order to compete at the highest level. It's going to take a couple of years, I think, for Oklahoma to be able to do that, but I think you'll see the Sooners roster moving forward, uh, as as Lincoln makes a, a comment. I think you'll start to see Oklahoma kind of morph into looking like what we see at the Alabamas, the LSUs, the Georgias. Change is coming. I can't wait to watch it unfold. Yeah, and just for clarity, for any listeners out there, when Tyler says Lincoln making a comment, that is the dog Lincoln, whose name has stuck, I guess, through through all the situation over the last uh, two months. But um, but yeah, I agree with you, Tyler. Like Brent Venables, the staff in place, there's a lot of excitement there. It's it's all based on you know just theory at this point. Like we actually need to see some some proof on the field as we get into the 2022 season, and probably the 23 season will be a lot more telling, in my opinion. Um, but you, you, you'd like to think, hey, yeah, that ceiling is much higher now with Brent Venables than it was with Lincoln Riley. Is the floor lower? Um, I would say probably that's also true. Um, but you guys made the case for me as far as why I don't want to watch that game because I just see that gap. I see that gap between where OU is and where Bama and Georgia are. And that hurts. That hurts my soul because in my mind, like I'm a very prideful fan. I don't think that OU should be that far away. And yet here we are, there's teams like Bama, Georgia, um, in recent years, LSU and Clemson, Ohio state also, um, you know, going up there and it just feels like OU is, is not that close necessarily. Um, and there's that 21 year gap just haunting us right now. We've been really, really good, but never, never great. Um, you know, since then, or at least, uh, since 08, we haven't played in a championship game. So, um, I'm hopeful that that Brent can get us there, and there's a lot of optimism right now, but he's got to prove it. I'm sure we'll touch on it here in a little bit when we hand out our hand out our letter grades for the report card to kind of recap the 2021 season for OU. Um, 
But, you know, we, we talked about the speed in which those teams played last night. We talked about the size and the athleticism of the guys in the trenches. And honestly, a third one for me, the biggest difference that you see when you look at Alabama and Georgia, even Texas A&M, LSU, compared to Oklahoma, it starts in the strength and conditioning department. And I feel like we've talked about this numerous times, and I always bring up the fact, like, whenever I got to my seat at the Peach Bowl two years ago to watch OU and LSU play, it literally looked like a freshman squad trotting out there to play the varsity. It was night and day difference, and I knew I kind of knew from that moment on, okay, OU's going to have a tough time competing for four quarters. So the fact that we do have Schmitty back, I think you're going to start to see Oklahoma transition back to what we used to look like back in the early 2000s when Bob was here, uh, BV was here. You'll start to see some of those bigger 300-plus-pound uh, defensive linemen that can really move um, and, and get out there and you know chase down quarterbacks and running backs. I think the ceiling for this program is probably going to be similar to an LSU moving forward where once, twice a decade, this team is probably actually relevant for actually winning a national championship. That's kind of where I think we're at. We don't have the at-home resources that some of these other schools do. Um, and I think that's just kind of reality. I hope I'm wrong. I hope we're competing more often for that. But the slate's only going to get tougher year in and year out heading to the SEC. Uh, and if we haven't done it in the Big 12, I just find it hard for us to be consistent competitors uh, in a tougher conference moving forward. Adam, I feel like I know what your answer is going to be, but would you take that Oklahoma becoming an LSU-type program once we make it into that conference where, yeah, you might have some 8-4 and four or maybe even a 7-5 and five year every now and again, but if you can guarantee yourself that you're going to win one, maybe two national titles every decade, would you take that? I would. I mean, the easy answer is for sure yes, and like I wouldn't hesitate about that. But man, those seven and five years would really hurt. Um, and you see that in in the way that LSU's fan base is kind of unstable. Um, you see it with Auburn in a sense. Um, there's some other programs out there that kind of fall in line with that, where they ride the roller coaster up and down, up and down, and uh, that takes a toll. Whereas at OU, you have a lot of stability. Um, you have a, a lot of fan base and big donors that are just very much looking out for the best interest of the program. No one's rocking the boat too much, but at the end of the day, um, you're kind of that even, you know, 10, 11 win uh, span. You don't really go too high or too low, but I mean, there's some trade off there. So I know there's, there's been a lot of conversation. Um, everyone's doing their way too early uh, top 25s, which some people, you know, really hate. Some people kind of love um, definitely a lot of conversation starters, not too many people high on OU at this point. A lot of new faces, uh, both leaving Norman, coming into Norman. I know, Corbin, you've got uh, several of those transfer portal uh, names lined up. Where do you want to start there? I want to start with actually the announcement that was just made a couple hours ago with Jay Valai being announced as the co-defensive coordinator, overseeing the pass defense. Tyler, please control your urges uh, during this segment. Uh, But you have been on this guy for quite some time. Please give us your best sales pitch as to why we should be excited about our boy Jay. Well, short and simple, if he's good enough for Nick Saban to hire him on to coach cornerbacks at Alabama, he's good enough to coach at Oklahoma. So I think, um, one, it'll be nice to actually have a uh, true traditional cornerbacks coach that, that you know, actually played and will coach that position. And you don't have, you know, somebody that played and coached another line, uh, coached the linebackers. We're going to switch him over to maybe coach corners to, you know, maybe try to fill that reading, uh, that role and get another recruiter. Um, but no, I, I think that this, you, you talked about it, Corbin, you know, moving to the SEC in the next couple of years, OU doesn't have the same amount of resources in the state of Alabama, the state of Georgia, down in Florida. Um, the state of Oklahoma just isn't that talent rich compared to those other states. That's why you've got to have 
elite recruiters that are part of your staff, the Todd Bates of the world, now a Jay Valai that comes on board, a guy that has a ton of ties to this area. Obviously, he grew up in the state of Texas, coached for uh, uh, you know a, a brief stint at the University of Texas. You know he's had some time with the Kansas City Chiefs in an analyst type role. He's coached at Rutgers, co- coached under Nick Saban. Um, and if you go back and you look at the coaching staff that was part of that 2018 Rose Bowl um, where Georgia knocked off Oklahoma, um, Jay Valai was actually part of that Georgia staff as well. So this guy's been able to learn from Kirby Smart, Nick Saban. He can bring um, not just a wealth of knowledge, but also an energy and also a hunger wanting to be able to recruit and make a name for himself. And like I said, I, I told you guys a month ago, that's kind of who I wanted. That's who I hoped that you know BV was going to push all his chips in for. And I, I think that I can't wait to see how that's going to play out, not just on the field, but also on the recruiting trail as well. There's a few interesting things about that. Um, you mentioned, you know, he's a guy that actually played and coaches the corners, uh, unlike Roy Manning, who's not very popular around here at this point. But uh, if you flip over to the other side of the ball, Kel Gundy, former quarterback, never coached the quarterbacks. Um, and now he's doing a really great job at a different position. Jeff Levy never played quarterback, is coaching the quarterbacks. And we know he's a, a skilled guy. So I don't know how much stock to put into that necessarily. But I guess secondarily, um, talking of, of the transfer portal, Latrell McCutcheon just entered today, uh, mainly based off of some uh, differences he has with Jay uh, Valil, so uh, or Valai, sorry. And then uh, I, I believe that there is some scuttlebutt, I guess, as to whether Nick Saban was willing to let uh, Valai walk from Bama because of another recruit that he wasn't able to pull into Bama. So certainly some red flags there. I hope that's nothing. Um, I'd hate to just get really excited about a guy that's from Bama because, uh, you know, Texas did the same thing with their head coach last year and look where that led them. Uh, but uh, I think there, there's still so, some room for optimism. I'm just a little more cautious about it. Guys, moving on to obviously a huge name uh, that maybe Oklahoma fans should become less familiar with uh, is that of Caleb Williams. And uh, we know he and Mario Williams <clears throat> Both visited the University of Southern California within this past week. Uh, Tyler, you mentioned it's been now reported that Mario Williams is uh, on an official visit to Texas, which if you start putting the dots together, you know Mario is going to follow Caleb. And so now you got to wonder if Caleb may end up being a Longhorn. Lots to talk about there, but guys, just we're, we're good here, right? We can close the book on Caleb Williams and his time at Oklahoma. Is everybody in agreement there? Man, it would feel weird if uh, he ended up at Texas, obvious for obvious reasons, but also the Quinn Ewers perspective there. Does he then transfer out again to get another deal? I have no clue. Uh, that seems really far-fetched to me. Um, there uh, is a lot of smoke around USC, um, which I maybe that doesn't necessarily close the book. There might be some more discussion needed there. Um, but as far as from an OU perspective, like uh, – not holding out any hope whatsoever, fully moved on to to Dylan Gabriel and anyone else that might be coming in. Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty safe to say Caleb and Mario, that that's a package deal. And, you know, there, there's no way that either one of those two, I think, end up in Austin. If anything, I think Mario, uh, it's a free trip. It's an official visit that Texas is going to pay for. Go out there, see the world, see another. Uh, and who knows with, you know, how Lincoln Riley operates, he might be sending Mario Williams down there to find a little bit more information that he can use at a later date. So, uh, but no, I, I I think you know it's it's time to close the book on that. And honestly, guys, if we're being honest, or <laughs> to throw those words in there back to back, um, I think that the the door was closed on Caleb Williams the minute Dylan Gabriel um, committed Oklahoma. So we we've talked about it time and time again. It kind of feels like oh, you made their final 
pitch to Caleb. Um, they were recruiting him for the last month after Bedlam was over, and when he said he still wanted to enter the portal, I think that was OU saying, okay, well, you know, you go find the best option for you, and we're going to, you know, likewise for us. So uh, it, it's going to be really interesting now that you do have Dylan Gabriel on board, what Oklahoma and Jeff Levy specifically, what they do do at quarterback. Um, I, I think that, you know, with what we're hearing, what we're seeing out there, Oklahoma is going to take two quarterbacks out of the portal. Um, we mentioned, you know, Ch- uh, Chuba Purdy, Jackson Dart, two guys, uh, you know, Purdy, uh, he's obviously on a visit to Oklahoma right now. Jackson Dart is rumored he could be coming into Norman this weekend to check out the, the campus. So it's going to be a lot of fun to see. And um, there's obviously with Georgia and Alabama finishing up last night, we've already seen another wave. Uh, or I guess a mass exodus out of Tuscaloosa, and we'll see what comes out of Athens. Players entering the transfer portal, and it's going to be a lot of fun to watch. Drew Sanders is another guy uh, to keep an eye on that OU fans are have got to be very familiar with. Was obviously committed to, to Oklahoma for almost two full years, and then switched over to Alabama at the very end. And he was a starting linebacker for the for Alabama this season before um, his season-ending injury with his hand. So could be somebody that hopefully BV can poach out of the portal, and we'll see what happens. Yeah, let's dive into those two quarterbacks just a little bit more before we move on to the next segment. So uh, Chuba Purdy, um, between Chuba Hubbard and Brock Purdy, I mean, it's just a terrible name com- you know, combination if you're an OU fan. But nonetheless, he is in Norman as we speak uh, on a visit, guys. This is a guy who I know literally nothing about outside of the fact that he you know, came from Florida State, which probably sounded a lot better about 15 to 20 years ago than it does right now. Um, but I know nothing about the kid. And then you've got Jackson Dart who, you know, really high-touted prospect transferring out of USC. We've heard rumors he could be in Norman as early as this weekend. Now, all of a sudden, you've got rumors of him being actually being in Oxford at Ole Miss this weekend instead. So who knows what this is going to look like moving forward. But guys, either one of uh, those two excite you. Any, and I think one clearly does, but any thoughts there overall? Chuba Purdy is a guy that he was a, a four-star probably middle or low range four star coming out of high school. Didn't really play much at all at Florida state, except for uh, some mop up duty against UMass. So uh, with all that Florida state had going on, he couldn't make a, a dent there. Obviously a little bit of a younger guy. He had some older guys ahead of him. So not, not super, super concerning there, but the guy just really doesn't have very much tape and he wasn't, you know, super five star coming out of, of high school necessarily. So I, I guess going to OU is is probably might be the best that he can do, knowing that he isn't going to be able to beat out Dylan Gabriel in, in all likelihood. He's probably going to be a backup, might even get passed by Nick Evers. So that's kind of the reasoning that uh, we're in on him. Good depth, if that's you know what we have. Um, I would take him rather than just having nothing. Um, but I don't know. I can't get super pumped about what he might be able to contribute actually on the field. Yeah, Purdy's a guy that I'm, you know, his film's good looking at his high school tape, obviously playing in the state of Arizona. I think he was, you know, he was one recruiting class behind Spencer Rattler. Um, He entered the transfer portal back in November, two seasons at Florida State, and I think he only appeared in four games and might have made just one start uh, during his time in Tallahassee. So Purdy's not one that I'm super excited about um, as he takes his visit right now, but ultimately if he does commit to Oklahoma, yes, that's good depth. That provides good competition, uh, but I think that ultimately – kind of let you know that Dylan Gabriel that's you know that's we can go ahead and uh, pencil him in as QB1 Jackson Dart's another one where you look at the guy four star coming out of high school number five quarterback in the country uh, in 2021 according to rivals 
very limited amount of time that he played. Uh, he appeared in six games at USC last season, just a, a, a hair under 1,400 passing yards, nine touchdowns, five interceptions. But when you look at this guy's arm talent and you look at the film, you see the potential that's there. And thinking about him, we all know how Levy likes to use quarterbacks in his offense. We all saw how Matt, uh, Matt Crowell, how versatile he was with his feet. You get a bigger body quarterback here in Norman, 6'3", 215 pounds, and Jackson Dart that can – you know, that's a true dual threat quarterback that can run Levy style of offense like what we saw at Ole Miss last year. Um, if I have a choice, it's Jackson Dart 10 times out of 10. But with Dylan Gabriel already being here in Norman, does Dart want to come in and try to compete and beat him out? Or does he maybe want to go somewhere uh, where the opportunity to play right away is a little bit easier? Yeah, I think I saw a pretty good note on that earlier today that, you know, Dart committed to USC when. Um, Keaton Slovis was a, I think it was, he was kind of a Heisman front runner, uh, possibly even a year before when it was, uh, what's his face at uh, Georgia now. But so he's not afraid of competition. I think that's the point I'm trying to get to. So it'll be interesting to kind of see how that plays out. Yeah, I, I think that that's, it's going to be very interesting to follow. And, you know, guys, NIL is fun to talk about. And then the transfer portal, I mean, it's just, it's just nonstop, one thing right after the next. And in Twitter, I just feel like you're refreshing it time after time and t- time again. So, um, but let's, let's kind of transition into the bulk of this podcast. And what we wanted to do tonight was, you know, kind of recap the 2021 OU football season. Um, a lot of highs, a lot of lows. Um, ultimately, wasn't the outcome that many of us anticipated um, happening. But what we're going to do is we're going to – it's report card day. We're going to hand out some letter grades to the coaching staff as well as go through each position group and kind of, you know, hand out our passing, failing grade. Maybe some some positions got an A. Maybe some positions got an F. So, Adam, starting with you, man, let's just, let's just talk about the coaching staff. Let's get this out of the way before we touch on any of the players. What grade are you handing out? Uh, to Lincoln Riley and this coaching staff for their 2021 uh, performance. I'm ripping the Band-Aid off early. I'm giving the coaching staff an F. Uh, we had super high expectations coming into the year. We uh, talked about how, you know, basically if they meet expectations, they're playing in the national championship game. And uh, even though we only had two losses, nowhere close to that. Um, yes, there is probably a little bit of, um, you know, hurt on my end as far as how the season ended with Lincoln Riley. But just look across the board, uh, Benny Wiley, um, the quarterbacks, the offensive line, pr- pretty much everything on offense outside of the running backs, um, I think was was pretty disappointing. I think the defense as a whole, you could you could kind of squint maybe and like twist some stats and pull the right stats to feel good about yourself. But by and large, the defense, um, I don't think, took the step forward that we all wanted them to. So just across the board, just failed expectations. Um, that's why I got to go all the way down to an F because I think in the college game, the coaches um, have a, almost everything to do with motivation, preparation, mentality. Like that tone was just totally missed this year. I think that's laughable of a great Adam. I'm sorry. Uh I've got it as a B minus. If you're talking about specifically Lincoln Riley, sure, put him in an F all you want. But if you're talking about the coaching staff as a whole, you cannot put it as an F just because of what happened once Lincoln Riley left. The the, the reality that some of this coaching staff was able to stay intact, not only that, but also to save some of the recruiting um, you know, prowess that we had. Uh, and then on top of that, going out and winning a bowl game handily with a coach who hasn't coached in – five years, you can't give that an F. There is a lot of bad on the coaching staff this year, but there was also some good on the coaching staff this year. I don't think the defense was just 
atrocious or anything like that. I don't think I need to squint to see that this defense made strides over the course of the season. So I'm going B minus on the coaching staff. I think it could have been better, but it's not nearly as bad as I think Adam just made it out to be. I guess we're grading on a curve because a B minus is way too high. And Adam, I'm actually going to side with you on this one. I'm not going all the way down as low as an F. Um, and I'll, we'll kind of touch on you know individual coaches as we kind of move through the position groups. But for this staff as a whole, I'm going with a D minus. I almost thought about going with a with a hard F. You know, expectations were a national championship. Lincoln said it at the very beginning of his opening press conference to start fall camp. That was the expectations in the locker room and the coach's office. Everybody was on the same page that that was the goal that they wanted to achieve. And thank God they did not play in the national championship game this year because I I would not be able to go through that um, agonizing pain again. But this was by far the most talented team in the Big 12. And, Corbin, they didn't even make it to the conference title game this year. But you have um, to take the big picture. You're giving Bob Stoops a uh, D-. minus. That's what you're telling me. I'm talk- No, I- I'm not even factoring Bob into this equation. I'm-, I'm talking about from game one against Tulane all the way until – I'm going to say the regular season on this because the bowl game is kind of a season in itself. That entire month feels like – um, kind of a ch- uh, its own individual chapter in the 2021 season. But they struggled against Tulane, Nebraska. It took a game-winning field goal by Gabe Burkich to knock off uh, West Virginia when they couldn't even score, you know, 21 points in that game. Texas, they were down 28-7. to They lose that game if not for Caleb Williams. They probably should have lost to Kansas. Like, let's be honest here. They should have lost that game to Kansas. They could have easily, outside of Gabe Burkich being on this team and maybe a couple 50-50 balls going the other way, this team could have easily been seven and five this year, maybe six and six. So Lincoln Riley coaching this season with one foot out the door, that explains a lot, but throwing that to the side. And for me, outside of Calvin, Calvin Thibodeau and Jamar Kane, the coaching staff to me failed miserably this season. And I think you have to, you have to give a lot of that blame towards Lincoln because it, you know, it, it trickles down. So clearly we need to moving forward, get some more parameters because I'm taking the, if we're saying for the whole season, I'm taking the whole season. And what the coaching staff was able to do after Lincoln Riley left has to be acknowledged for just as bad as the coaching staff was at times before that. So for me, that's kind of where I came up with, with a B minus. Maybe that is high, but to salvage the program like this coaching staff did that's still intact, and even some of the guys that came back and finished out the bowl game, that's really freaking hard to do. So that is kind of why... I'm on the other side of this, and I'm not going to blame the entire coaching staff for the head coach having one foot out the door basically the entire season, it seems like. And I think, honestly, I would give that one-month period from the end of Bedlam all the way until the very end of the Alamo Bowl, the job that Bob and the rest of the coaching staff did, I would probably give that an A++. So factor that in together, it might get me to a B-, minus, but... Um, and again, we maybe should have clarified a little bit better, but I'm talking Lincoln Riley for over the course of those 12 games. Um, D minus for me and Adam, I, I can probably even get behind an F. So switch over to quarterback. Corbin, we'll start with you. Uh, roller coaster to say the least this entire season. We start with the uh, Heisman front runner and Spencer Rattler. And a few games into the season, he gets benched for a true freshman and the rest is history. So what do you got for the quarterback position? I mean... This was not, might have been the hardest one for me to grade because there were some incredible moments with Caleb Williams down the stretch, including the bowl game. Just going to asterisk, I'm putting the bowl game into this. Uh, but then you look at, you know, how the season started with Spencer Rattler and that that deserved an F, maybe maybe a D if you're, you know, feeling kind today. So I'm going just a straight up C, you know, about as middle as you can get. You had high of highs and low of lows. And when you do that, you kind of just have to even it out. So I'm giving it a, a straight C. 
I'm going with a B minus here. I just don't think that for as much struggles as they had, I don't think that a lot of it was necessarily their fault. Spencer Radler, I, I mean, it, it's hard to fault him when your coach is putting you in so many positions to not be successful. And we saw that even continue with Caleb Williams through some of the play calling and game strategies. Um, towards the end of the year, that started to make a lot more sense uh, with what happened. But you'd like to think that, um, especially earlier in the year, that Spencer Radler, with the talent he had, should have been able to overcome even you know some poor play calls or some poor game plans even, um, just with what he you know, is able to do with that arm. And he just took a real big regression. Um, so there were some good things, like you mentioned, some flashes of greatness. Um, and you wouldn't expect too much out of Caleb Williams as being a true freshman to show the consistency that we would expect of an older guy, but just not enough for me to get much higher than a B minus here. Yeah. I, I just went with a B as well. Um, honestly, I've when kind of doing this, I gave Spencer Rattler a C plus and I gave Caleb Williams an A minus. So that just kind of averaged it out for me. Um, you know, when talking about Spencer, you know, pros and cons pros, you know, I thought he played a hell of a game at Kansas state going on the road. That's Manhattan's been a place that's been kind of a Thor in Oklahoma side over the last, you know, five to 10 years. I thought he played extremely well there in Nebraska. He played well for a half. Um, but then, you know, when you look at Spencer coming off of last season, especially that cotton bowl performance against Florida, we kind of expected Spencer to, you know, take that next step and, you know, really jump up and live up to those expectations of being the Heisman Trophy front runner. We just didn't see that this year. And, you know, maybe that was a byproduct of, you know, poor play calling, bad offensive line play. There's, It's not just Spencer um, because obviously the kid is talented and we, you know, hopefully he's going to do great things at uh, South Carolina. But then when talking about Caleb, I thought that he, you know, raised his uh, level of play, you know, not just himself as a, at the quarterback position, but also for the entire team, the leadership, him kind of stabilizing um, this team for the back half of the season. Obviously, he's going to be a legend here at Oklahoma, even if he does go to USC because of that Texas game that'll always live, uh, you know, in the minds of Oklahoma fans. But cons for me, he did. we did lose two out of the last three. He really didn't have an answer in the Baylor game. Yes, I know that was his first true road start uh, in a hostile environment, but didn't play all that well against Baylor in the biggest game of the year. And then the second half against Oklahoma State. I'm going to put a lot of that on Coach Riley, uh, for I guess what he's been coaching offensive football for 10, 15 years, not having a game plan or an answer uh, for the rush three drop eight um, type defense. So uh, I'm going to give the quarterback position a B and that's just not quite what we expect at the university of Oklahoma. What do you guys got at the running back position? Uh, yeah, I've got a B plus here. If I was just grading it on Kennedy Brooks alone, this is an A plus um, certainly a, a guy that, probably won't ever get his full due for what he's uh, done throughout his career with so many different uh, offenses, quarterbacks, offensive lines in front of him. Um, I, but the fact that Eric Gray was a huge disappointment this year, whether that was coaching, misusing him opportunity, Marcus major um, really didn't have much of an opportunity. Part of that may have been him fumbling really early on once he uh, returned to the team, but uh, B plus, I think it's solid just by Kennedy Brooks alone, but the rest of the backs are pretty lacking. Yeah, I had a B plus as well. Um, Kennedy Brooks actually gave him an A minus. You know, if if I had one knock on the guy this year, he, I mean, as a, as a running back, pass protection was something he struggled with, especially the first part of this season. So, um, got to deduct a point or two for that. But you're talking about a guy, another thousand yard season. That's three in three years. All the more impressive when you saw the offensive line play this year. He had massive games against Texas and Oregon, finishing on a high note. Um, so Kennedy Brooks was phenomenal. Eric Gray, I think everyone, including myself, had really high expectations for him. 
uh, transferred in from Tennessee. But to be honest, his best game uh, didn't come until the Alamo Bowl at the end of the year. And a large part of that was, I think, Kale made a concerted effort to, you know, utilize his skill set the right way and not treat him as a, you know, a traditional running back, calling plays for him to run between the tackles. So um, he kind of flashed right there at the very beginning of the year. But one thing that I can't really, you know, forget about when talking about Eric Gray, it was the muff punt late in the second half against Oklahoma State in Bedlam. That be, you know, that was pretty costly, that mistake. So I give the running back position a B plus and wish we could have seen a lot more from Marcus Major. Yeah, well, yes and no on Marcus Major. If you can't get your grades and stuff situated, I have no sympathy for that. Uh, that's not a coaching desk staff decision. That's a you decision. Uh, so we can argue about that another day. But uh, I've got a B plus as well. This is the uh, tied for the highest position group rating that I have. Um, yeah, you, I, I think I said, uh, you know, heading into last season, I didn't think Eric Gray was going to be as big of a contributor, um, as some people may have thought because Lincoln Riley does not know how to use this type of running back. Um, but that proved to be true, but thankfully Kennedy Brooks was there to, uh, to clean up the, the slack, you know, almost, uh, 1300 rushing yards in the season. So B plus there for the running back positions and echoing with you both strictly because of Kennedy Brooks. Adam, what do you have for wide receiver? I think this could be one where um, maybe we're either all in agreement or more than likely will be um, kind of difference in opinions here. Yeah, I had a C for the receivers. Um, there were some okay moments. I mean, Marvin Mims certainly had some great catches, some great games, and then some other games where he was just non-existent. Maybe that was his fault. Maybe it wasn't. But outside of him at 705 yards, this may surprise you guys. It's kind of surprised me. The uh, next leading receiver was Mike Woods at 400 yards. We had, we had a bunch of guys that were right at about 400 yards. And so no one really um, just took the spotlight and said, I'm the man. Uh, Marvin Mims was the closest, and he was just kind of non-existent in a couple of games. So frustrating that we didn't have someone that really stepped up and became the man, and part of that could be quarterback play, but we should have had a lot more for the talent that we had. Yeah, I've got a, a B here. It wasn't ugly. It wasn't necessarily pretty. There were some highlights or some lowlights, pretty average all the way around. And uh, now we're starting to add up a couple seasons in a row where we don't have a thousand yard rusher or excuse me, receiver. So, um, yeah, was uh, was pretty surprised by that Mike Wood status a lot earlier today. So just kind of very average uh, on the year for the receiver position. Yeah, I've got C plus for the wide receiver position. You know, I think Lincoln is a play caller. Um didn't always put them in a good situation, and I think he seriously underutilized guys like Marvin Mims, Mike Woods, and even you know Mario Williams. Um, I think that in terms of um, like the quarterback play, inconsistent quarterback play, especially early on, probably didn't help these guys. Uh, but outside of Marvin Mims in the Texas game, you know, does another standout performance this year come to mind at all from this receiving core? I can't really think of one. Um, and I think it just kind of goes to show, Corbin, you mentioned not having a 1,000-yard receiver. I think it just goes to show that OU hasn't been able to get as much production uh, out of that room compared to years past. And, you know, guys, I know he's a good recruiter and he's going to do good things at, UC, uh, at USC, but Dennis Simmons' group wasn't all that impressive the last couple of years after C.D. Lamb left. So the talent was obviously there, and we had guys in place to be, to be able to do it, but it just kind of feels like that was a, that was a group that we – expected to take another step this year that was a group that had a lot of high expectations a group that you know Lincoln and Dennis Simmons really challenged we heard about in the offseason and um, we just didn't see that performance um, like we expected to so uh, moving on to the H-back position um, this one was kind of tough for me to 
uh, kind of hand out a grade because, you know, there's three to four guys that play that position and it kind of feels like each one of them, you know, has a different skill set. You got a different performance for them throughout the season. Um, I gave the H back and tight end uh, group a B minus inconsistent. Sometimes you forgot that they were out there, you know, Stogner, you could tell outside of the Bedlam game, which was really, really good. It was nice for him to finish the year strong. He wasn't quite fully recovered. I don't think from the injury the previous year as he was continuing this season to kind of get back to where he was uh, beforehand. But, you know, this position group had some really nice moments as well, especially from Jeremiah Hall. Um, Brayden Willis had a few nice catches throughout the season. So, uh, I think the Jeremiah Hall is probably the one carrying the load on this. So I'm going to give the H back room a B minus. I had them at a C. Yeah. Jeremiah Hall had a good year at the beginning of the season. I think we, we gave an over under on how many touchdowns he might score. And we had a discussion about, you know, previous H backs that were successful. I think that over under we set was at five and that's exactly what he finished. That was just five touchdowns. Um, I guess I, I shouldn't say just five. That's pretty good for an H back. Um, he averaged, you know, over nine yards per touch. Uh, so Pretty solid, but outside of him, Braden Willis um, didn't play every single game. He had some injuries. He finished, I think, about 170 yards receiving, and Stogner um, right there as well with 166 yards receiving. So just not much going on there outside of Jeremiah Hall, who Lincoln certainly has a knack for getting that guy involved in the offense and getting some production there, but just felt like we should have got a lot more out of the tight end position, uh, whether there you know, was injuries or not. Um, we had two really talented guys and only about 300 yards between Braden Willis and Austin Stockner. Yeah, I'm splitting the difference between you both. I've got a C-plus here. I really don't have much to add um, other than what you guys have already said. Um, kind of just the story of this entire team was kind of just eh, and this was another one of positions that was kind of just eh. So that's all I got for that one. Okay, offensive line. Let's let's kind of dive into this one a little bit. I think we will have some uh, difference of opinions here. Um, Adam, starting with you, man. Offensive line, Beanbow's group. What what letter are you handing out to this to this guy? I couldn't get any higher than a C minus here. Um, there were some pretty rough games. Um, there were some decent games. Uh, but if you look back at the stats, ninety second in sacks allowed, over two point five sacks allowed per game. Um, with Spencer Radler, that's one thing. The guy's not nearly as mobile, but with Caleb Williams, that trend still continued, even with a guy that could really move around that was harder to bring down. So just so many guys that really regressed um, with Marcus, uh, Marquise Hayes, Chris Murray, Andrew Rame really never, uh, you know, he, he was obviously the best that we had, but he never really took that big of a step forward. The tackles were just sometimes non-existent. So a lot of frustrations there. And, yeah, maybe that was scheme on running, but from a pass perspective, protection perspective, really missed the mark there. So C minus for me. Yeah, for me, it's a, it's a C. Uh, a lot of things you mentioned, Adam, but I think at the same time, if we're going to give other position groups passes for how the coaches handled their situations, you have to do it here too. I think it's pretty common knowledge now that like the running schemes specifically were not suited to be um, – to highlight the strengths of what this offensive line was. And I think that was highlighted specifically against Oregon in the bowl game. Granted, that wasn't, you know, the same Oregon front seven. I get that. No Thibodeau. So it wasn't, you're not facing the, the best of the best from that group, but you saw it in the, in the, the Oregon game specifically. Like if you, if you would have changed your philosophy and how the line was blocking, going to more block zone blocking schemes, there would have been more success there. So it's hard to put a grade on it, 
when you kind of have that back of your mind thought of like, are they being utilized in the right way? So, uh, but still there were some really ugly times, especially early in the year. So, uh, C's about as high as I could go. Yeah. I'm going D plus on this one. Um, a few good moments throughout the year, you know, ultimately, you know, Kennedy Brooks, he doesn't get to where he's at thousand yards. If the offensive line doesn't perform well at times, but, uh, I give this group a D plus just based on the inconsistency alone. And there were oftentimes guys that this offensive line was soft. They got bullied, uh, feels like for the entirety of the Baylor game for at least the entire second half of the Oklahoma state game. And it was kind of interesting too. I'm basing this D plus grade basically off the fact that Bill Beanbow based on preseason expectations, he stepped to the podium and said that this was the best offensive line that he feel like he's had since that 2018 Joe Moore award winning group. So um, didn't live up to those expectations. I think that Benny Wiley's kind of had a negative impact on the offensive line. We can dive onto that. Uh, as we move into the offseason a little bit more, but you can definitely see the drop-off in offensive line performance over the last three years. So I, I think that the O-line, um, outside of the players itself, Bill Beanbow might be the happiest guy getting Jerry Schmidt back because I think that this position group, I think, has a chance to be the one that Schmitty can have the quickest impact on in year one, uh, maybe not from just like a strength and physicality standpoint, but maybe a mental toughness uh, as well. So, um there's a standard when it comes to quarterback play, wide receiver play, running back play. The exact same uh, thing, you know, is true for the offensive line. And I didn't think that the O line had a uh, consistently good year at all. So D plus for them. Other side of the football in the trenches, Adam, what do you have for uh, the defensive line? I gave them a B plus. Obviously, some really high expectations for the defensive line. We thought they were going to be a top ten unit uh, in the entire country, but yet they finished forty fifth in uh, sacks per game uh, on the on the on the year. So, um, there that stat is maybe slightly misleading because of how few plays uh, this team faced. Um, so there weren't nearly as many opportunities to rack up those types of stats as we might have seen uh, for some some higher paced offenses. But at the same time, this defensive line really disappeared for stretches of maybe an entire game or an entire half or quarter when we needed that line to absolutely be the most disruptive um, you know, piece of that defense to help out the other units. And they had times where they were that and had times where they weren't. Um, so that's the highest I can go as a B plus. Got a B plus as well. Uh, I said tied for the uh, running backs in the highest ranked position group on my end. Um, again, had some really solid flashes. There were times that they completely controlled the game, even if the sacks weren't there. Um, but, you know, because I think Adam hit on the head, there were times that would just kind of disappear. So um, I thought overall, I think we should be pleased by the defensive line play. Um, so I gave him a, a pretty strong B plus there. Uh, we're all in agreement. I gave him a B plus as well. Um, you guys pretty much, you know, knocked it out of the park. I think that, um, the only reason I can't give them an A plus is because of the lack in production when, you know, maybe Jalen Redmond was out multiple games and Perry on Winfrey's, you know, effort level was so up and down throughout the season. Um, I, I think that this was a group coming into the year expectations as high as they were. I thought that they played really well, but there were also some stretches where, you know, the quarterback sacks didn't, didn't rack up, or maybe we ran into a game where, uh, the opposing team was able to run the football on us for, you know, large portions of the game. So, uh, we'd have to go back and look at the rushing yard performances by the opposing teams. But I think that the uh, the, the combination of Winfrey, um, IT, Redmond, and you know Nick Benito as well, I thought it was definitely probably the strongest position group for this football team this year. So I think a B-plus is a good grade to give to him. Linebackers? 
Uh, I'll take the lead on this one. Linebackers, um, I'm going to give them a C-plus on this one. Uh, I didn't feel too good about this position group. Obviously, Brian Osmo, he flashed at times, especially that Baylor game. Oh, my God, that was probably the best best game that he's played in his career. He's going to the NFL. Surely he gets drafted, right? You would. Think I think he's so. he's probably a day three type of guy for sure. Yeah, round you know four, five, six type of guy. Okay, okay. Well, uh, but I mean, out, outside of Brian Osamoa and you know Danny Stutzman flashing early in the season, I was not a fan of the way this group played all season when the expectations for them were as high as they were. Um, to me, nobody really took a big step from 2020 to 2021. We heard so much about, you know, Deshaun White, David Aguebu, even Shane Witter was a guy that a lot of people had high expectations for on the coaching staff. So <clears throat> very similar to, you know, what we talked about with the wide receiver position, not taking that next step and, you know, not just being football players that, um, you know, that can, you know, fill the stat sheet, but linebacker didn't really have a difference maker. And I think that's one of the biggest differences that you see when you watch the game last night, Alabama and Georgia, and you watch Oklahoma, they have difference makers at all three levels of, of uh, that defense. And I just don't think that that's something that Oklahoma has consistently enough of. Um, but linebacker was one that struggled this year, so I'm going to give him a C plus. I had a C minus for many of those same reasons. There was no difference maker. Nobody really took a step. David Aguebu still feels like he's in a wasteland that is non-productive but has uh, immense potential there. And just for for reference on this, Nick Benito, I'm not counting in this group. I know he plays a linebacker position in title, but I consider him a part of the defensive line. So there's just really not a guy that stands out. And um, looking across the, the board at the stats, only two sacks coming from the linebacker position, one from Osimo, one from Stutzman, zero interceptions. Um, this is a group that got uh, burned pretty bad in the first part of the season as far as um, you know the, the short and medium passing game. So they were they were one of the biggest liabilities of of this defense. I've got a C as well. Um, I, I do think that group got better as the season went along, but it was never great. Um, but Adam, you hit the nail on the head early in the season. I mean, those short to intermediate passes they were just getting torched on uh, time and time again, especially mid to, to deep mid, uh, you know, center of the field. It was just open all day long. So. Definitely, you know, a group that, uh, you know, you hope with Venables taking over moving forward, um, we'll see a lot more success with. Well, let's transition over here to the secondary, starting with the safeties. Um, safeties, uh, I'm going to give them a B plus this year. Pat Fields, I think, was one of Oklahoma's most consistent players all season long. Uh, and, you know, Delarian Turner Yell, you could see the difference in the drop off in performance when he wasn't out there. Very similar to Jalen Redmond. Uh, in my opinion. So I'm going to give them a B plus because while they weren't the greatest unit we've ever seen, they still made a lot of plays that helped Oklahoma win a bunch of games this year. So uh, a solid B plus effort for, uh, for the safety group. Yep. Safety is I've got, I've got B minus. Um, I think they got better and better as the season went along. Um, but there were some moments early where you kind of scratched your head a bit. And especially when DTY went out, like you mentioned, Tyler, it wasn't quite as there. So if we're going to judge them by, a full group that does include when a guy goes down with injury and it wasn't very good. Um, you know, uh, after, you know, I guess when DTY was, um, you know, was on the bench. So, uh, B minus for me from the safety position. I just, just a regular old solid B for this group. Um, they were probably one of the most reliable position groups out there. Although there were times where 
uh, both Justin Broyles and Patrick Fields, um, you know, were not in the right position to be successful there. And then you started throwing other guys in that sometimes played, sometimes didn't. So it was tough for this group to be successful. And uh, if I am correct, which I believe I am, Justin Broyles and Patrick Fields combined for four interceptions, all of them off of tips passes. Deflections are great, but man, you, you would love to see our safeties actually just step in front of a pass once in a while. Yeah, and let's let's kind of close it out here um, with with well, I guess we can talk a little bit about special teams. Um, but let's talk about corners here. Corbin, throwing it over to you, man. Th- this wasn't one that I had too many thoughts on. This was a group that was just kind of you know, blech, um, yep. not too high, not too low. But I, I gave him a C, and that's about all I had for it. Yeah, I gave him a, a B minus. So I'm not too far off from you. Uh, some good times, some bad times, and as like I said, we we were seeing a theme here, just kind of eh. And that's kind of been the story of the season. Man, there were several times where the corners got burned. Um, I can, I'm can, i still seeing it in Texas. Um, all those long bombs, whether it was Latrell McCutcheon, who's now in the portal, or DJ Graham. Um, you know, Woody Washington returned from injury. He looks like a stud there. But on the other hand, you've got DJ Graham, who had one interception on the year, which was a top 10 play in all of college football. And then basically... I think teams didn't throw his side for, you know, several games and then realized, Oh, I guess we can beat him too. And he just really didn't do a whole lot. So um, that's why I'm going with the C there as well. Well, I think that we're probably all in agreement, but let's talk, we can kind of lump um, both kicker and punter. Um, Michael Turk was probably a top two or three player on this team. You could probably even say the same thing for Gabe Burkich for most of the season. Um, I talked about this team being, you know, a few 50-50 balls away, a few plays away from maybe being 7-5, and 6-6. Six um, I think that there were probably not two bigger players that, you know, were a huge reason that Oklahoma was able to, you know, squeak out so many close wins. It was because of Gabe Burkich's leg, Michael Turk being able to flip the field, uh, punting the football. So I'm going to give the special teams group just the two kickers. I'm going to give them an A+. plus. Are we going – pre-burrito or post-burrito because I think that changes the scale so yeah I, I would give them a B plus I'm not going to make I'm not going to give them an A um, that's just me I think you kind of have to be almost perfect uh, if you're going to get an A and we had some head scratching moments especially post-burrito kick um, so yeah give me a B plus really solid group though I think Gabe Burkich will have to sacrifice a Qdoba worker before uh, trying out for the NFL you gotta be careful where you're throwing that shade because that was not a Qdoba burrito but um I'll go a minus um you know Michael Turk basically perfect on the season I don't think there were hardly any shanks or bad kicks Burkich had some incredible kicks and also some really head-scratching ones but none of them seemed to cost us uh in the end of the day so can't be uh can't be too critical there well let's talk a little bit about uh some other sports that are happening in oklahoma uh men's basketball corbin what's going on with them yeah guys we're excited we uh should be coming off the victory at home against number 11 iowa state who is currently up by two at uh, halftime in lawrence uh, outscore the Cyclones 47 to 30 in the second half. Their third win over an AP top 15 team. Currently on the road in Austin, uh, guys with 9:23 to go. It is 15 to six. Texas, uh, you are not going to win very many games scoring six points under the 10 minute mark in any half whatsoever. So hopefully the team will turn uh, this around. You know, down there in Austin, they've had some success 
under Kruger and Austin. Uh, so hopefully uh, Mosher and the guys can can take care of business down there. Heading into this weekend at number, excuse me, not unranked TCU, but they are 10-2 and two on the season, so it should be a pretty good battle. And guys, uh, week in, week out, the Big 12 Sooners host number nine, Kansas, and number one, Baylor and Norman next weekend. So the gauntlet continues, but, you know, right now Baylor is up by one uh, against Texas Tech at home with about five minutes to go. Like I said, Kansas down at half. Uh, so I still think, you know, Baylor's by far and away, you know, best team in this conference, but the grind gets to you even if, uh, even if you're the number one team in the country. So, <laughs> excuse me, we'll see how those teams uh, perform going forward. Yeah, down in Austin, OU just has no rhythm offensively. I think they're getting out rebounded um, ten to four on the board. So you're not going to win too many games doing that. But uh, flipping it over to the other team that uh, Porter Moser shares the LNC with, that is the OU women's basketball team, uh, who traveled on the road Saturday, knocked off Kansas eighty-two to sixty-eight. OU had to climb back from an early. 15-point deficit after the first quarter, and they actually outscored the Jayhawks the final three quarters, 68-42. to 42. So, uh, major shout-out to that group. Taylor Robertson, team-high 24 points. Maddie Williams pumped in 20 of her own. And, guys, Oklahoma is now ranked 23rd in the country in women's basketball. Um, pretty pretty awesome side. It's, pretty, it's uh, pre- pretty crazy, the turnaround that's going on over um, within that program at the LNC. They actually are going to get set to host the number 14 Baylor Bears tomorrow night. Guys, this team is 13-2 and on the year. They continue to impress, and tomorrow night they've got a chance to make a statement against Baylor. So really, really exciting things are happening within the women's basketball program at OU, and we'll see if they can take it, take advantage of that uh, home court advantage, um, whatever you want to call it, whenever Baylor comes to town tomorrow. Baylor's uh, coming off some uh, COVID challenges with their roster, so I don't know what uh, so what their availability will look like. You're telling um, me there's no a chance. Have, well, there's more than a chance. Uh, no Kim Mulkey on the sideline anymore for the Bears. Uh, and uh, Jenny Bronchek's team, number two in the entire nation in scoring offense. So I'm pretty excited with what women's basketball is building. It feels like we're way ahead of schedule at this point, so you got to love it. More total um, points scored or more fans in the stands for this one that is pretty rude uh you can't uh <laughs> you can't be knocking our 60 plus uh fans uh that hard tyler they're, they're diehards yeah fix the <laughs> fix the arena uh, another uh team that also uh i don't want to say plays but competes in the lnc is the women's gym and uh, they had their season opener this past Sunday on ESPN, which is pretty awesome uh, to get that type of showcase. Uh, beat up on number six, Alabama, um, basically highlighted by back-to-back tens on the vault uh, by both Allie Stearns and I hope I don't butcher her name, Catherine uh, Lavasser. Uh, so pretty good outing there. Uh, wouldn't expect anything less from a uh, championship level program like uh, women's gymnastics and um, got another big matchup on Friday evening against number four, uh, Utah again, ESPN two. So lots of really great exposure for our uh, women's gymnastics program. Uh, and so looking forward to see how they uh, do throughout the year, as well as bring in some more women's sports updates, softball about a month away. So I'm no sooner nation is super pumped about that. Uh, baseball as well. Maybe not nearly as much excitement there, but uh, you can count on me to uh, to give some really excited baseball updates until about halfway through the year when uh, we fade really hard and I no longer want to talk about it. So um, that's going to do it for this evening. Uh, definitely appreciate everyone that uh, is listening. Make sure that you go on Apple Podcasts, subscribe, give us a five-star review, and uh, give us a follow on Twitter as well at the Mainline Pod. 
uh, we will see everyone again next week for another episode of the Mainline Podcast.